You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, Stephen King has a creep show full of sleepwalkers. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, and I'm a vampire, cat, Egyptian, maybe, incestuous guy. I don't know. Later on, I'll be on charm. And I am Thomas Mariani, and I've told you a thousand times, stop reading and watching this whole crap, Adam. You know, it's probably really good advice in my case, but... <laughs> you have a problem. This is actually an intervention. You need to stop. Oh, is our guest, our guest, that's not his name. It's a group of those type of people. Yes, it is. <laughs> our, our guest is Legion. He is one. He is a returning no, a, guest. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, well, yeah it's, it's Christian Alvarez, right? Christian, remember Christian. Yeah. Christian, welcome back. Yeah, yeah Christian. Hey, guys. He's, Hi. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds so sweet and innocent. I can't wait for him to have a dark turn halfway through this probably massive, long, lengthy story that's going to have, like, really weird turns. Probably be disappointing by the ending. But, Christian, <laughs> welcome back. And, uh, you know, we invited you on. Uh, to especially this particular episode because uh, we're covering Stephen King, which we've done before on the show. We did it back in episode 12. This keep in mind, episode 141. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's been a long time since we've done Stephen King as a topic, but I mean, it's one that we could honestly keep repeating endlessly because uh, there's a lot of Stephen King movies. And uh, Christian, I know you're a pretty big fan of the man, especially the adaptations of his work, yes? Definitely. I got into Stephen King from a very young age because my parents were actually big Stephen King fans as I was growing up. So by the time I hit like middle school, I already kind of knew like who he was. And I knew that like not every movie was perfect, but he has definitely a lot of good ones. And even the bad ones, they are pretty fun for the most part. What would you say is the first one you at least remember getting attached to when you were younger? Um, the first one I probably, uh, really got into was Misery, because my parents were just like, you know, it's not too violent, and it's mainly just the language. Kathy Bates is amazing in it, James Kahn, he's fantastic, and it really is a very small but very intense thriller. I think the first one I ever saw, weirdly, was one I actually rewatched like, as prep for this episode, I hadn't seen in decades, probably, was Cat's Eye? The anthology um, oh, with, yeah. with Drew Barrymore um, holds up a lot better than I remembered it. I had a similar thing where my dad especially loved 80s to 90s like Stephen King adaptations and watched the hell out of them and made me watch them, especially like some of the bad miniseries. Like that dude fucking loves Rose Red. 
and I don't I don't fucking get it. It's so boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a boring fucking miniseries. Even at his worst, especially with some of the stories or uh, the films eventually that would come out, there was at least some kind of like interesting premise at the core of those stories that makes them, if not like great stories overall, at least interesting ideas that I can respect, even if especially the adaptations don't do a great job with them. Uh, but what about Adam? Would you generally agree with that? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, I'm not like a huge diehard King fan. I definitely respect the man and respect his work and sort of what he's offered to the genre as a whole. I mean, there's no question he's one of the masters. If you were to ask somebody in my family, the first one I saw was Cujo because that scared I was scared of dogs for a while because of it. But the first one I remember seeing, well, maybe not remember seeing, but the first one I remember like taking note of whoa, so the Stephen King guy's a big deal, was the Stand miniseries. Mm-hmm. Because it was huge, dude. It was like a huge, huge event. And uh, that's kind of the first time that I sort of started connecting the dots to who the guy was. And Because, like, my parents weren't really into, aren't really into horror and stuff like that, but I had an uncle who really was. So he kind of, like, would show me some of the Stephen King stuff. So, like, that's the first time I saw all the Halloween movies and stuff like that was with him. And uh, that's sort of where I started to, piece together that the same guy did all these different wild movies king has had some kind of like thing being adapted either on movies or on tv like consistently at least once a year since about like 1980 like the first one was uh carrie and then you had like salem's lot in the 70s but then really since i would say like the shining and going forward there was at least one king adaptation of some sort out a year and even though like it's not always in favor like, King kind of comes in, like, bits and waves and stuff like that, which arguably, like, that especially happened, like, fairly recently with, like, 2017 between, like, It Chapter 1 and, like, the Gerald's Game movie. Like, King became fashionable again and is still at least somewhat fashionable uh, this at this point that we're recording. So I think he's a guy that still kind of pops in and out of the zeitgeist for various reasons. We're covering uh, two movies here, if you don't know, at the end of our last episode, as we do with every ending of an episode, uh, like this one we'll be doing uh, or picking for next week. Uh, we pick movies for the B for the next episode. Uh, so I had two good picks, Adam had two bad picks, and we ended up getting a good movie and a bad movie to cover for this particular topic of Stephen King, which our patrons over at patreon.com slash pod voted for. Thank you all out there, including Christian as one, as uh, we'll probably talk about it later as well. Um, but uh, we ended up with our good pick is Creep Show, which is my good pick. We'll be talking about that first. And then after that, we'll be talking about Sleepwalkers, which was Adam's bad pick. Boy, we talk about sleepwalkers. Yeah, we'll talk about sleepwalkers. Boy, boy, (laughs) we'll have a few things to say about that movie, won't we? (laughs) We will, we will. As well as our first film, which is Creepshow. Coming soon. Jolting tales of horror. Creepshow. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Creepshow will grab you, grow on you, and give you the creeps. Creepshow, the most fun you'll ever have being scared. So 
So uh, Creepshow came out November 10th, 1982, uh, which was written by King, the actual screenplay. Um, and it's an anthology film, so there's f about five different segments. Though two of them are uh, based on stories he wrote, like The Crate, which was the inspiration for The Crate segment. And then also Weeds, which is the inspiration for the lonesome death of uh, Jordy Merrill sequence but all the other things are originally written for this particular movie it's weird we'll be talking about this how like both our movies technically aren't adaptations as much because there's a lot of original content here and sleepwalkers will mention is like his first original screenplay um but this is based on the feel of like ec comics as is very much the case with uh, the visual inspiration from director george a romero um and yeah it's a bunch of different anthology segments we'll probably go through each segment um, as we go along here, but just uh, initial thoughts here. Uh, Christian, are you a fan of Creepshow? I love Creepshow. I go back and forth with all of the King adaptations over the years, but it's probably one of my favorite Stephen King horror projects that he's done. It's like the cinematography is great, like how it captures kind of a comic book look. The The cast is fantastic, and... It's just such a fun ride. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. This was definitely an early one that I watched as well. Um, and I think it was a big reason why, as a kid, once again, this is another one my dad showed me, I probably got into both horror comedy and also just was kind of even able to embrace horror because I was, as I think we've mentioned before, like many a horror fan, I was a little scaredy cat as a child. But I think this one was fun enough to where even the scarier stuff I had, like, a lot of fun embracing to this degree and uh, what about you adam are you a fan uh no i think it's shit <laughs> no of course yeah no, <laughs> no yeah i think it's uh it's definitely one of stephen king's best uh sort of uh projects like christian said but it's also probably the movie that really sort of got me uh into anthologies like trying to find as many as i can watch them i just i love the idea of a good anthology movie especially a genre anthology that has sort of the the lighter bits mixed with the truly horrific stuff and it kind of goes all over the place and i think this is just a shining example of how to do that right still to this day yeah and plus i think it also helps that king works really well with anthologies because he tends to write short stories and also that has him avoid the usual problem he has of making a very 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 long story and <laughs> i would say halfway through it starts falling apart because he's not really sure how to like complete, as opposed to these individual stories are mostly, I would argue, are like pretty consistently good. I would say this is one of the few anthologies where I don't think there's a bad segment. I think there are ones that are better than others, but I don't think any of the mm -hmm. segments are necessarily bad per se. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that absolutely. I mean, I there are some that, yeah, I think there are a little bit lesser ones, but all in all, I think as a whole, it's incredibly uh, solid. It's definitely one that has such great shiny moments. And even though it can kind of dip into a lot of the tropes of Stephen King's works, it never is really bogged down by it, by that you see in a lot of other Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, very true, very true. And plus it helps that it has that like EC Comics aesthetic to it. I think this is, speaking for Romero, um, I think this is my favorite Romero movie in terms of especially the look. I think this is one of those movies where how many different comic book adaptations we've gotten like the near 40 years since this movie and none of them really captured the feel of especially this kind of era of comics it's being tribute to. And I think this is a really big reason why not too long after, like later in this decade, you would get like Tales from the Crypt being adapted 
because Creepshow kind of like kicked off a lot of the, especially the 80s horror anthology stuff. Well, why don't we go ahead and start going into segments then here uh, with Creepshow. Like I said, there are um, five general stories uh, with a wraparound. We'll, we'll, we'll start with the wraparound here, I guess, briefly. That's uh, basically involving uh, Tom Atkins as a father who is being um, an abusive asshole to his son, who is played by Joe King. And the father's played by Tom Atkins, one of our faves. Though, the lack of mustache is unsettling with Tom Atkins. Yeah, this. no. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. He does not look right without a mustache. Tom Atkins without a mustache. Not my Tom Atkins. <laughs> I guess it helps to make him, like, more unlikable as a character. Because, like, he doesn't even have the, the mustache to cushion the blow of being an awful piece of shit dad. Or all the ladies he's kissing. And beers he's drinking. That's why he has that mustache. Well, he still drinks plenty of alcohol in this. He's like has at least a fifth of scotch. <laughs> yeah, but he's not as committed to it because he don't have that fucking mustache. The thing, no, I, I agree. It, it, just, yeah, nah. I don't like him without his mustache, and I don't like him in this movie. Uh, I don't know if it's because of the lack of mustache or because of what a horrible piece of shit he is. Uh, probably a little bit of both. He definitely does play into the whole trope of like how Stephen King writes abusive parents and everything, especially like how it just starts out with him just being like, he's tell he's screaming at Joe Hill to just say, uh, I told you to stop reading this horror crap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's mainly there just to kind of like have a nod to the fact that these comics were so controversial when they came out in the fifties. Cause if you don't know like the story of tales from the crypt and all that, how they were originally very successful comics. And then there was like the comics code came into effect and tried to basically destroy this entire industry of like horror comics around this era because it's, Oh, it's corrupting the children. Someone please think of the children. And I think it's mostly King kind of getting back at those people with like this, the entire like father character, um, which I think is why I really dig this wraparound, especially even when we get to the ending and have that father just come up and, and also more importantly, have Tom Savini who does like all the special effects and makeup stuff in this movie, his finest performance in the film as the one of the garbage men. <laughs> That, oh, bit, yeah, of course. <laughs> that bit where he goes with the other guy's just like, oh, it's a comic book? It's a comic book. What? It's a comic book. It's a comic book! <laughs> it's like my favorite <laughs> delivery. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so let's uh, get into then Father's Day, which is the first like official big segment. Um, and is basically about a family who is meeting all together as a family of adults who uh, always get together every Father's Day because it's uh, meant to sort of celebrate the death of the paternal figure of this rich family and um, as it turns out this paternal figure comes back from the dead and i would say this is while a good segment my least favorite of the segments yeah i think i agree with that uh, i think you kind of find that in most anthology movies where sort of the lead-in segment sometimes is the worst it's either the lead-in or the middle usually but yeah not to say this is a bad segment i think it's mm-hmm. awesome but yeah i i argue this one eh. I don't want to say it feels like it drags, but it definitely feels like it's even longer than the other ones. I don't know. It's too, um, too gothic horror for me. Uh, it, it, to me, the tones doesn't fit the rest of the movie so much. I, I would say it's less that it's more to me of like, it's a supernatural revenge story. And I think it's a much less emotionally investing one than a later segment we'll get to. I think that's just the thing. It's just like, it's a lesser version. And I think it also has a lot to do with um, my favorite stuff. And this is honestly earlier on with um, Vivica Linfers, um, who plays the woman who was uh, the daughter of this patriarch, who kind of ended up uh, murdering him on Father's Day. And I love all like that stuff where we get the backstory and then her visiting his grave and the monster, the zombie coming up from the grave. 
But I think you lose that kind of main, like, through line of a character who should have kind of probably been throughout the whole segment and kind of kept you emotionally invested. Because then you have the other family members who are fun. Like, especially, obviously, Ed Harris and his fucking weird dance, which is so great. <laughs> his stupid weird dance he does in the middle of the segment is so fun. You lose a bit of that emotional kind of investment in kind of like somebody getting their comeuppance for doing something awful. Um, in killing the father, even though he was an awful piece of shit as well. Um, it kind of fits the EC Comics aesthetic. When it happens so early on, it feels like, okay, we're just kind of dwindling around for the rest of the segment, which is fun. But I still think uh, it kind of lessens the impact of some of the, the scares and the gore. Would you agree with that, Christian, maybe about this being the lesser one? Yeah, it definitely has impressive makeup and effects with the zombie makeup. But it definitely does run out of steam especially towards the middle after bedelia gets killed in the cemetery mm-hmm. it really does make me wish that she, she wasn't the first one to see the zombie and she kind of lasts until the end at least i feel like that would have made for a bit more of a better ending with the comeuppance yeah because it's comeuppance for like her niece and nephew who really didn't like do much of anything except kind of be spoiled brats which is kind of weird that like they end up getting the front end of the cake, which is a great image for the the movie, and obviously the whole recurring gag of "I want my cake, Bedelia." Like that's interesting. That's fun as like a horror motif. Killing that character so early on is still a problem, though. There's still fun stuff. Like I especially love uh, Carrie Nye, who ends up getting the cake death, um, but her kind of like. Um, droll aesthetics and just being like, oh, yes, we're just waiting for Bedelia to come back. You know, we just can't eat supper without her. Like, all that stuff. There's, like, some fun, kind of, like, aristocratic, waspy asshole character traits from these people, but I don't think it has, like, nearly as much of an emotional impact as the other stories managed to. Yeah, I definitely would have liked to have seen uh, Vivica Linfors, like, interact with those characters because Mm -hmm. apparently a lot of it was improvised. So I'd like to see her as kind of the, you know, almost kind of Catherine Hepburn-ish, like, she's just an out-there rich person, like, dealing with kind of the spoiled bratedness of the niece and nephew and, like, just everyone else, like, thumbing their noses at her as kind of the family kook. Yeah, particularly, I love the way that she has that cigar in her mouth. And when she goes over and, like, has her weird rant to the gravestone, but just like, oh, yes, I'm back again. He had to, to do all this and, like, how she basically, I think, awakens the zombie with Jim Bean. Like, she spills the Jim Bean and then right afterward the zombie comes up. I'm just saying there's a direct connection. Jim Bean caused all of this. Wait a minute. <laughs> Jim Bean typically causes a lot of family problems. That son of a bitch. Does it cause um, the zombie apocalypse, though? I mean, maybe. Like it could. It's almost like Stephen King has a bone to pick or two with alcohol, guys. I don't know. At this point, he was loving it. I think this is still like <laughs> creep shows firmly in the oh, like, yeah, no, alcohol is great. He put Jim Bean in here, hoping to get a fucking like a sponsorship deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he knew what he was doing. It does grab you right away, whether or not it starts to bog down in the middle. Yeah, it does. But you are still interested in it right away. And plus, Ed Harris dancing, you know. <laughs> Like we said, lack of Tom Atkins' mustache, Ed Harris with, like, more hair is disturbing, too. Like, I don't like Ed Harris with hair. Well, also, he him playing sort of, like, the weird, like, doof husband that the one woman brings along. Like, which is, like, so weird, because, like, this is right before, like, the right stuff. This is super early in his career, so it's before he became the most self-assured man who you would never question. It's like, oh, no, Ed Harris is here. He's in charge, right? He's, like, the, the person who has everything together. Mm-hmm. And here he's a fucking doofus. <laughs> yeah, he's either in charge or he's the bad guy. 
And in this, he's neat. He's just a moron. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of morons, I think that's an operative point to get into our next segment, uh, which is uh, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill, which is very notable in that um, it's a one-man showcase for uh, the actor playing Jordy Verrill, who's this hick guy that discovers a meteor, which it turns out has some supernatural weed kind of effects to it. Um, And the guy playing Jordy is uh, Mr. Stephen King himself in his biggest acting role. He likes to make cameos in all these movies, but this is his biggest acting role. And uh, it's a very divisive performance amongst horror fans, to say the least. I'm very curious where we kind of uh, side on that. Adam, I have a feeling you might not be a fan of this performance. Uh, Actually, I love this performance. What a fucking twist. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, it's a twist. No, I think it's it's perfectly over-the-top, perfectly campy, just piss poorly acted but with so much like there's so much earnest attempt in it that it makes it charming and fun to watch and plus the fact that you know it's it's steven king like if it was any other actor he'd be like oh what the fuck are they doing but it's steven king so you're like oh he's trying look at him oh he's so silly and to me it works i i love that i absolutely love the tone of it it's so dumb and so bad, but it's just fucking flawless. You, you on that camp, Christian? This might be my favorite of the segments because it is so over the top and ridiculous with Stephen King's performance. It is just such a fun time and it feels like it's Stephen King's tribute to uh, the Evil Dead. Like, since he just raved about that movie, uh, his quotes are always on all of the posters for The Evil Dead. So I feel like this is just kind of him indulging in his trope of, like, poking fun at redneck characters and, like, him kind of doing a send-up to characters, like, isolated while they're uh, dealing with something supernatural. Plus, his daydreams about, like, getting money for the meteor are, like, the funniest fucking thing. So fucking funny. Especially shout out to uh, Bingo O'Malley, who's the actor that plays either his father or the doctor in those segments. Especially the bit where he's like, $200 for a broken meteor. (laughs) Which is (laughs) so funny that he thinks, like, the meteor being broken is going to be a hindrance to getting any money off of it. Like, they're going to break it anyway, too. It's, it's they gotta tell you that shit. Gonna, but I agree. I think that's what works is that like he's this lovable buffoon of a man, which I think makes him endearing in a way that like you probably wouldn't in the circumstance of like this kind of like dumb and shallow a character. But it's all because of King. King has this like weird personable energy that like it feels like it's the personification of Goofy, as in the Disney character, because it doesn't help the buck teeth kind of. To contribute to that but um he, he kind of feels like the, he's a human cartoon man but at the same time there's still enough of like an emotional investment in like oh this dumb hick doesn't know what's fucking happening he's this is gonna like totally wreck him and honestly like the ending of the segment has a particularly like powerful dramatic punch i never really see coming no matter how many times i've seen this movie where he's just covered in the weeds and he's just like please god let my luck be good for once to shoot himself just like damn that's such a dark ending for the silly bit. Yeah, like, when it makes that turn, it just gets so dark, and it's just, like, it ends this super lighthearted, like, basically horror comedy, kind of slapsticky segment, and I feel like that's just a really good place to, like, kind of have it in. 
Yeah, and also I do love the gradual effect of the green moss growing on him and even on the set. I think it's a great example of like the Savini sort of like use of these gradual sort of like appliances. It almost surprises you every time you see like another bit like pop up either on him or like on the TV and all this other stuff. Um, but but yeah, I, I think it's um, it, it's a simple but efficient kind of segment that um you know other horror uh, anthologies especially don't ever quite sometimes manage like i don't feel like any of these segments are too overlong i think this one is specifically like the perfect length yeah (laughs) and you know what kirsten we're best friends now because i think this is my favorite segment too glad to hear it (laughs) Uh, you're gonna say some dumb shit in a little bit though it's gonna change it all (laughs) the night is young we'll save all of that for our second feature oh i'm sure we will we'll get into that but uh let's get into uh the third segment uh which is uh something to tide you over which i would honestly say is my favorite segment it wasn't always my favorite segment but the more i've gone back to creep show i think just sort of like perfectly contained which is the story of harry who's played by ted danson who is this guy who's having um this affair with uh, becky who is the wife of this rich like tycoon uh played by leslie nielsen who um, Lizzie Nielsen finds out about their affair and ends up kidnapping him and and uh, forcing him to bury himself up to his neck uh, right by the shore, just as the tide is coming in. And the supernatural kind of uh, effect that would come to him later, uh, but come back to bite him. And I think this segment's my favorite, I think, because it's such a like perfectly put-together sort of segment. It also escalates things, I think, really well. And and plus, uh, Ted Danson's really great. Uh, Ga- Galen Ross, who uh, plays back, he isn't in it a lot, but I think is um, very good and like, really upsetting to see, especially her fate when it happens. But Leslie Nielsen's MVP, especially since I think this was the first non-spoof thing I saw Leslie Nielsen, even though he's still very over the top. But um, he is genuinely intimidating in the segment, and I think it really works for him, especially as he's selling the threat of having Ted Danson buried with stuff like the, oh yeah, I own this speech, no one can hear you, help, help us! See? Nobody's coming. Um, I think he's very intimidating, but also has enough charm, especially when he's laughing by the end of the segment. Now this one, I, I like it now more than I did when I was younger. And the reason is because I could not handle fucking Frank Drebin and Sam Malone <laughs> going nuts on each other like this. Like it, it blew my mind. When I was, but, but what? But why? Like I just, I, I couldn't understand because I loved, I, you know, my, my grandma who I used to stay at her house almost every day after school, watched Cheers religiously. And then I've started watching the Naked Gun movies at a very young age. And so I always loved them and they meant so much to me. So to see them in this way, dude, it just blew my little fragile mind. And so it's kind of always had this stink or stigma attached to it, which is totally ridiculous because I'm almost 40 now. So you think I could let that shit go, but I, I still like, don't drown Sam alone and Sam alone. Don't be a zombie and, and hurt Frank Drebin. Like what? Why are we doing this, guys? You guys are both silly, wacky guys. It just said, yeah, nah. <laughs> For the most shallow of reasons. I'm like, oh, I don't like this one. This segment, I think, is uh, really great. Like, I think it is a surprisingly very dark role for Leslie Nielsen, even though he had been a serious actor before doing, like, Airplane and the Naked Gun movies. Right. Other than Forbidden Planet, like... He's even more of, like, a serious character in this than even in Forbidden Planet. The closest early role is probably Poseidon Adventure, where he plays the asshole captain, who doesn't take the threat seriously of the ship capsizing. 
Yeah. Just the way how it turns when they become zombies and uh, mm-hmm. his him just laughing at the beach, just saying, I can hold my breath for a really long time. It makes for such a great supernatural comeuppance at the end. Yeah, I, I think it, it really works. I love the look of those waterlogged zombies with like the seaweed and stuff on them. And even there's a lot of like really cool effects stuff like Ted Danson's head inside of a tank. Which is, like, an actual thing. Like, he was inside a freaking tank from, like, his neck up. In such a comic book image, you could only really get through such weird extremes in this particular era. Which is like, oh, crap, we have to get a shot of, like, a guy up to his, from his neck up in water. Oh, we gotta put a guy in a fish tank. Uh, and it, that ingenuity is so interesting. And also, I think this has my favorite example of the moments where, like, an extreme reaction happens near the end. And there's the weird kind of, like comic book backgrounds that happen with Leslie Nielsen like laughing at the end I think works so well and then even just I, I love even how simple but perfect the scare is of him going into the bathroom being like oh okay it's all good and then he turns around and they're right there I think that's the exact perfect tone that I love about this movie where it's like super spooky but at the same time there's like a fun to it it's like a haunted house kind of deal like it was almost going through like a Halloween Horror Nights maze like it has that exact same kind of fun tone but I, I think really works perfectly it makes it my favorite segment I can't argue with that I love the makeup design for the zombies they're like perfect classic horror comic zombies and everything so it is definitely a really fun uh a, definitely a very fun segment no I definitely agree with the makeup I think the makeup's pretty solid it does look sort of classic zombie but there's also that perfect sort of like waterlog wetness slime to them it's probably my favorite makeup in the movie the audio that makes them sound like they're underwater like it fits perfectly for the yeah. this movie even though it's like it's silly it's like all bullshit. like it's silly it almost works where it's like if there was if there was like a, bo- a word balloon it would be like in the weird like squiggly font to indicate that they're yeah. like underwater <laughs> Yeah, but now they just sound like they're on old-timey radio. (laughs) (laughs) Do the Charleston, Leslie Nielsen. But let's get into another great segment, which is The Crate, uh, which uh, this one stars Hal Holbrook as uh, this professor who um, is uh, really good friends with uh, Fritz Weaver, who... uh, is a fellow professor and they're both like really chummy and uh, one of them works at this uh, particular area of the university the local university where um, he uh, finds a crate along with a janitor and there's a monster inside of that crate and uh, Hal Holbrook decides to take this opportunity to get some vengeance on his uh, shrewish wife played by Adrian Barbeau and I would say for a while this is my favorite segment and I think it's my second favorite at this point so I think this is a really like perfectly constructed segment though I think as I've gotten older, it does kind of have a bit of the uncomfortable, quite frankly, misogyny attached to it. Of just like these two guys, just like ladies, am I right? Hey, Barbeau is like so terrible. We gotta get rid of her. But at the same time, Barbeau like commits to this character so well. Like it's probably my favorite performance of the movie is her as this character. <laughs> yeah, but the thing, and I think that's kind of the point too, uh, to where you're supposed to be like a little uncomfortable by these guys. They're pieces of shit. But I get what you're saying though. It, it, it doesn't necessarily. Uh, translate to today's culture as well as it uh, maybe did. And they also don't get, like, a direct punishment. There's a hint of a punishment at the end of the segment, but they get off mostly scot-free. Yeah, that's true. Uh, But yeah, I do agree with A.G. Barbeau. I think, you know, like I said, Stephen King's the wacky performance and everything, and it's it's my favorite, but she's absolutely sort of the best in it. And uh, this might be my favorite A.G. Barbeau performance 
period. I'm not 100% on that, uh, but it's really, really close. It's between this and The Fog for me. I think it's a really fun segment. Um, definitely uh, Hal Holbrook and Fritz Lieber, like you want to see them get some type of comeuppance. But um, yeah, Adrian Barbeau in this, she is like a riot, just like at the party where everyone's just like all hobnobbing and acting all uh, snooty. And then she's just slapping everyone drinking, saying, oh, don't call me Wilma, call me Billy and everything like she is having the time of her life in this segment, and it's incredibly fun to watch. Also, just the effect of Fluffy, the the crate like monster, uh, just reading that since Tom Savini wasn't familiar with how to make kind of like a kind of puppet for the effect, he had to ask Rob Botton from like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing and The Howling on how to make this stuff. And you can definitely kind of see that that's where like Tom Savini's kind of starting to learn how to kind of up his effects game, especially for stuff like day of the dead. Yeah. I think this whole movie is such a great showcase for the diverse range of Savini's like makeup and stuff. I, I mean, there are other ones where he's done at least like more impressive, elaborate stuff like day of the dead. Probably is a showcase in terms of especially like gore and guts and stuff. But I think this has like so many different diverse things that he does with it, even down to fluffy. I agree. I love the look of that creature where he's like part Bigfoot and part monkey and part like so many other things that don't quite like, he's not like any animal that's ever existed. And I think it works really well, especially when you see him sparingly. And just the, the factor of this, like, crate being around since, like, the 1800s and being from the Antarctic, which you mentioned the thing element of it, um, is kind of like a nod to that. And also the fact, obviously, Adrian Barbeau at the time was married to John Carpenter. There's a lot of, like, uh, familial aspects to this. Um, but also, I just want to shout out my favorite Adrian Barbeau yep. line of the whole movie is mm-hmm. definitely the bit where she's talking down to Hal Bilbrook at the the college and she's like your regular barnyard exhibit sheep's eyes chicken guts piggy friends and shit for brains <laughs> it's like that's the line of the <laughs> yeah. movie for me it's so good <laughs> you know i i think i agree with the the tom savini sort of uh uh statement there it, this is sort of like a real good tour de force by him like everything does work you can kind of see that he's kind of pretty well versed and believe me as much as i love tom savini he would tell you the exact same thing about this movie to house how good his work is in it having talked to tom savini a couple times it is 100 percent accurate <laughs> he earned it but also yes <laughs> you know, and he'll also tell you he could fence and that he could shoot a bow and arrow real good and use a whip and he was a vietnam photographer and all, i mean it's he, he's tom savini's tom savini's biggest fan but for a reason because he is really good and as much as i do think day of the dead is probably like his tour de force it's amazing from beginning to end as far as the effects this one is probably the best sort of showcase of all the sort of different things he can do Mm -hmm. i think this one also has some of the best character bits like hal holbrook has the thing where he's like stifling laughter at a certain point when he's trying to like confess this horrible thing (laughs) to adrian barbeau when she treats it just like oh he's an idiot or even adrian adrian barbeau the bit where she's like drinking um some milk and then she pours scotch into it as she's reading the letter (laughs) It's so good. Like, who drinks that? <laughs> what person drinks that kind of drink? But, uh, but yeah, I, I think this one has at least a lot of the best, like, sort of character beats of the segments, for sure. It feels like the most least well-realized world of any of the segments. I definitely agree with that. At the beginning of this, I said that this is a brilliant movie, and this is definitely one of the reasons why. Because even though it isn't as, you know, over-the-top as 
the other segments, it definitely works in a lot of great ways. Yes, yeah, so, but let's get to the final segment here, probably the most infamous segment of They're Creeping Up On You, uh, which uh, mainly is a showcase for E.G. Marshall, great underrated character actor, who uh, plays Upston Pratt, um, as you could probably tell from that name, a horrible asshole rich dude who is seen in here um, in his like very hermetically sealed white apartment, just firing people over the phone and being generally like shitty and very concerned about germs, uh, who encounters some cockroaches that come into his domicile. And um, like I said, I think this segment is whenever I talk about Creepshow to people, they mention this particular bit because obviously of all the cockroach stuff, which is like a very iconic image, admittingly, of the, the use of the cockroaches and people obviously are so scared of bugs in general. I can see why this one definitely attracts a lot of attention, but without E.G. Marshall's perfect performance, I don't think it like works nearly as well as it does because he's channeling some pre-Simpsons Mr. Burns energy as this asshole and it's so good. Definitely. He's such an unsympathetic and like he like loves being so evil over the phone. Like he finds out that his competing business partner like killed himself and he's just laughing to himself, just ready to just like relish over it. As you said, Tom, it's it's a perfect like precursor for Mr. Burns and the Simpsons. Yes. Uh you know, I mean I am I have a real giant phobia of bugs period like i hate them so this is the one that uh even as a kid i would skip a lot i wouldn't even watch it um i just think it's so gross and disgusting and honestly that's the point uh so on that aspect alone then I, yeah it's incredibly incredibly effective but fucking gross but yeah eg marshall rocks the shit in this movie and he is mr burns it's it's also also really interesting watching it uh, in 2021, given um, he's so concerned about germs and he wears a mask at the opening of the segment and shit. You're just like, huh, maybe Upson Pratt wasn't all wrong. <laughs> maybe he had the right, <laughs> like, hygienic concerns, not hum- human concerns. It's like if Trump actually cared about COVID, <laughs> basically is what he is. Well, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's accurate. Isn't it fun being able to make that joke without him in the White House? Isn't it great? <laughs> He's listening. He's listening to this, though. But he can't tweet about it, can you, motherfucker? No, you can't. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, <you> can't. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I I also get why like the the cockroach thing, especially like aliens people, because of like the amount of cockroaches again, especially like a lot of these were like shipped in mm-hmm. from like foreign countries and stuff, and um, it's well, just like the volume of them is so like unnerving to see because like honestly like i'm I've, I've i've had bugs in my house and shit like that it's like it's not something you want to see but you imagine like oh god where's 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 the source and you find the source here you live in florida absolutely you've had bugs in your house <laughs> i lived i lived down there we had bugs and geckos and fire ants and everything fucking thing else you could think of yeah no it's gross and the fact that they're like you know they're like diplomatic cockroaches like they're here on a mission <laughs> it, it's just, it makes it even worse because they're they're really like oh i don't oh now i'm grossed out this was apparently the most expensive segment to film because they got like two hundred and fifty thousand of them too so it's just you definitely feel like just how overwhelming and gross it is and Especially when E.G. Marshall's body just explodes in the sea of cockroaches. It's just very effective, definitely. 
Yeah, and I think this one also has some of the best, like, sort of, like, production design or even the music elements in here. Um, with, like, the look of his apartment is, like, so phenomenal. I, I love how, like, completely white and stark it looks. Almost looks like it's, like, something out of 2001 in terms of how, like, clean it looks initially. Um, and then also John Harrison, who we haven't mentioned much about. Um, I love his score in this movie, and I think this has at least the most, like, creepy cries of when, like, I think in that segment you're talking about when he ends up, like, having the cockroaches burst out. It has, like, this creepy, crawly synthesizer. It's just like, oof. Oh, it fits perfectly. But, yeah, it, it really unnerves you with that ending bit. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I, I, you know, this is one of my favorite movies, so I've read a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff hearing that, like, it was originally supposed to be, like, this super lavish apartment and everything, it's so much more effective just seeing how like white and kind of bare it is. Cause it's like from the beginning, you just know that he's a little bit too obsessed with keeping everything clean and how much that just backfires on him. And uh, yeah, also uh, the little shout out to the evil dead music uh, playing right. on his jukebox at the beginning. One thing too, about the EG Marshall character, like I, are we all in agreement? It's clearly like sort of a, um, Howard Hughes sort of idea too. Yeah. Like how Howard definitely Hughes his life. Yeah. I think that's probably sort of the main basis of the character. Yeah. I, I would definitely so say so. You guys could quote me on that. I'll take that idea. That's my idea. Never been said before. So I'm <laughs> I, I, I deserve to start getting checks. Reissue the Scream Factory Blu-ray just so we can put that quote on it. Um, right next I to Roger it. Ebert's quote. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've been talking about Creepshow for a while, and we do have a whole other movie to talk about. So uh, Christian, go ahead and do some quick final thoughts on Creepshow. This is probably one of the most influential movies for horror anthologies out there. It obviously inspired the Twilight Zone movie that came out a year later. It inspired... Tales from the Crypt that came out at the end of the 80s. It inspired probably the movie we watched last time on the Vincent Price episode, From a Whisper to a Scream. Classic, never forget. And yeah, I mean, the influences on this are still felt today. The makeup is just a triumph of Tom Savini's craft. It is a good, like, middle point between Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead for Romero. And honestly, it's it's Stephen King bringing his A-game to horror. Yeah, Adam, your final thoughts on Creepshow. Uh, well, like I said, this is single-handedly the film that got me into horror anthologies, which is one of my favorite sort of subgenres of horror, period. It's, it's such a huge, huge, influential, popular film. And it's for a reason. I mean, it is that good. It's damn near a perfect movie. Yeah, I, I really love it. I wish, especially in a modern comic book age, we would get more comic movies that embrace this kind of, like, silliness, even though it's not based on an actual property. I, I think it, it more comics should at least embrace kind of this silly factor, this wonder, um, because I think it works so perfectly for that. Like, the transitions we can even talk about with the comic book, like, aesthetic of it. I, I love the look of all that and how we get from one segment to the other. And it is, I agree, it's, it's such a great horror anthology that it did kind of wreck horror anthologies for me because you're always kind of seeking another creep show you always want that uh but most horror anthologies never quite have that consistency i'd argue like trick-or-treat's probably the the closest one to come to that but yeah even like with the other creep shows like creep show 2 there's the direct video one's pretty bad and then there's also tales from the dark side which had like romero and stephen king kind of uh, somewhat involved and is better than i think some people give it credit for but none of them have quite ever equaled like what Creepshow does in terms of consistency of story and the makeup and managing to make these 
unlikable characters so investing and interesting. I think that's the big thing, is that even though, like, so many of these people are assholes that we talked about, they're at least still, like, fun people you want to see either have their demise or maybe even kind of almost get out of it. It's uh, it's one of my favorite horror movies, and even movies in general. I, I love Creepshow. But uh, before we get into our other wacky feature, here's a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Howdy, this is Cowboy Jim, and I'm here to talk to you about the Cigar Nerd Podcast. Nothing I like more on the old dusty trail than sitting down and listening to two good old boys who smoke cigars and talk about nerd things like movies and TVs and comic books and all that stuff. So saddle up and ride on over to CigarNerdPodcast.com. They're also on the ESO Network. Yeehaw! And now let's get into 1992's Sleepwalkers. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Brady is new in town. The girls all like him. The teachers all respect him. But nobody really knows him. Like his mother. You cannot be in love with this girl, Charles. Behind their smile is a secret. I don't know who you are, but I know you're not who you say you are. Behind the secret is a hunger, and behind it all is the imagination of Stephen King. <laughs> Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. So, uh, Sleepwalkers came out uh, April 10th, 1992, and uh, is the first and as of yet only original screenplay written by Stephen King for a film. Gee, I wonder why that could be. <laughs> well, well, yeah, because mostly he's adapted stuff. Um, and even, like, the other original screenplays he's done since have been, like, on TV. Like, either TV episodes, like the miniseries he's done. But, but yeah, this is um, a Stephen King original. And I think that's pretty appropriate. Most of the Stephen King adaptations remove, like, the weirder things from the stories that, like, most people wouldn't be invested in. See... It and the weird orgy sequence that is in that book um, that yeah. was rightfully deleted from any adaptation. Um, and this movie feels like it especially is like, hey, let's just have those weird bits that no one would be interested in seeing in a movie, but not have like the fun character stuff also that people like about Stephen King <laughs> stories in general. But Adam, this was your pick. And uh-huh. um, what do you think of Sleepwalkers? <laughs> I think it's fucking terrible. Uh, I, <laughs> I think I do think there's some fucking kind of good bits to it. Uh, mainly Alice Krieg, uh, she's phenomenal in it, way over the top and everything. But I think it's sort of like they have to be in order to even just propel this preposterous script. Uh, but what I the reason I picked this movie, there's one scene that why I picked this movie when Brian Krause is driving. And they, <laughs> and it does the large Marge Pee Wee Herman sort of like, and he transforms into the cat with the stop motion effects. Yes, oh, it's the funniest shit, dude. Oh my god, and the cord on the cob death. What oh. the? Fuck? <laughs> this movie, and of course the incest. But, um, yeah, I, I think I think most people who aren't aware of what Sleepwalkers is are like very confused by this right now. Adam, briefly try and summarize the concept of Sleepwalkers, please. To well, that's not that easy because <laughs> there are <laughs> uh, these two characters, 
played by Brian Krause and Alice Krieg. He's like the All-American. Looks like, you know, sort of like Steve Rogers after the serum. Blue-eyed, blonde-haired kid. He moves into this town with his mom. And, uh, you know, he meets this girl. And, oh, everything's going great. Yet, then you find out, like, the mom and him, they be fucking. And also, like, they're cat vampires. Like, they give you some really strange stupid like credit thing in the beginning and then that's it there's zero real explanation as to what the fuck is happening here they're like, they're like shapeshift into cat people basically they like shapeshift into cat people with weird faces but they're super fucking horny and that like they hate cats too there's some weird eternal war between them and like house cat that's something you want to spend 90 minutes watching <laughs> you know what i mean normal sized people against house cats <laughs> I think I know who I pick to win, but and then it's like cameo fest galore. Yes, and oh god, yeah, really cheaply shot. Like it looks shitty. Like the this is like Mick Garris. I like Mick Garris as a person. He seems like a really nice fucking guy. Yeah, Postmortem's a great podcast. You haven't heard it where he interviews a lot of people. He's, he, he, he seems like a very sweet gentleman, but I don't think he's that great a director either. <laughs> Not at all. His stuff all looks super, super low budget, man. Which probably is for the most part. But there's no flair to it. It's all pretty stale. You know, and then other than Brian Krause and Alice Krieg and a wasted Ron Perlman, no one really is good in this movie at all. Like, they're all so over the top and hammy, but not in a fun way. It's just kind of like a depressing way. Oh, and I forgot to mention. The mom is fucking her son in this movie. Like, a lot. And, like, and, and, lot. and the son fully consents. Like, they have, like... Oh, he's rich... totally it. They're all, yeah. they're all sweaty and rubbing each other's yep. sweaty chests. You know, there's a bunch of ass and snot and spit all <laughs> well, over the well, place. Well, well, hold on, hold on. To interrupt your horrible <laughs> descriptions, uh, Christian hasn't gotten a chance <laughs> to talk. <laughs> that was incredibly accurate. That was no, so no, I'm not saying it was. I'm not saying it was inaccurate. I just said it was disgusting. Christian... <laughs> for the love of god christian you you were uh you hadn't talked about the movie much i don't you hadn't seen this right before i had not seen this but i will say this um this movie sucks uh (laughs) good good right we're all in agreement on that i like looking at trash and this movie is definite trash this is probably one of my on towards the bottom of my list of Stephen King adaptations. I thought the Tommyknockers uh, was my worst, but Sleepwalkers is now lower than the Tommyknockers. That's accurate. I agree, it's very terrible, but it's much more watchable than some of like the worser Stephen King, I would argue. Like, I'm watching this, and I had never seen it before, and I can at least say, like, well, I'm, I haven't seen this before since in a movie. Go on, please. <laughs> Pray tell, what, where are we going from here? <laughs> I yeah, that's true. Like... I'll watch this over the Langoliers. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Very true. I don't disagree with that. But go on, Christian. See, I relish in watching stuff like the Langoliers because there's at least one over-the-top performance like Bronson Pinchot as Mr. Toomey. Nobody really goes over the top in this. Or um, I watched Dreamcatcher uh, to get ready for this episode. At least Damian Lewis is going crazy between his English accent and his American accent. This one, I just ended up laughing at how terrible the effects look. Like, the 
cat people, like, when they're fully transformed into, like, their true selves, they have, like, Doctor Who alien bodies, and the heads <laughs> look like the Gorn from Star Trek. And then when they're, like, midway into becoming the cat people, they look like the Who's from the Jim Carrey Grinch movie. Oh. In my research for this, I'm just like, how did this cost $15 million? Because this came out the same year as Army of Darkness, and Army of Darkness cost $4 million less than this movie, and is ten times a better movie. Are you saying that Sam Raimi's a better director than Mick Garris's? That's, that's so it definitely It definitely sent me down a rabbit hole just being like, did is like a producer on this like a canon films like money launderer that just wants to make a shitty movie to like fleece the money out of the budget or something because a million of that budget went up to a bunch of people's noses i guarantee <laughs> there's no explanation there's no explanation why within the first five minutes when you see mark hamill you're like wait what? <laughs> just the opening scene of the sheriff like turning around. It looks like an after-school special. Just the quality of the film, everything. It's so bland and dumb-looking, and yet $15 million. Like, how much were those cameos? Like, how much did that cost them? Jesus. I don't, I don't think Clive Barker's asking for a lot of money to show up as a forensic scientist. <laughs> John Landis probably did, though. He needed a lot of money for Beverly Hills Cop 3. <laughs> yeah. I'll do it for eight fucking million dollars. <laughs> but yeah, it feels like the movie's taunting us by showing better directors that could have like had good effects and like actually made the script make sense. Like uh, Joe Dante, Toby Hooper and everyone too. Clive Barker would have been perfect for a story like this with this weird supernatural sexual story. You mean like he could have made something kind of maybe script would have had to been fucked with obviously but he could have made something cool with this other than that you just get it's just what (laughs) this movie this movie is a conundrum it's a question mark wrapped inside of an enigma like what is this but you know i want to at least defend one person we haven't talked about that much but i would argue is the most consistent performer outside maybe now alice creech i agree but i think she's in more scenes and i think she's like pretty fun as sort of the love interest character i like imagine amick in this movie, who most yeah, would, she's who most would know she's is great. from Twin Peaks. I, mean, I, I think the, honestly, the best part of the movie is her weird intro where she's dancing to the twist. Doesn't fit in this movie, but it's like, oh god, it's like fun. <laughs> it's like someone's having like some consistent joy as opposed to like. I, I think also a big factor, like I I, I agree about Alice Creed and I like Magic Brian Krause is fucking a wood plank in this. Movie. So dull, dude. So dull. He's so dull. <laughs> oh it's yeah. Like, it's like looking at drywall and thinking, like, man, even if this had stucco on it, it'd be more entertaining. <laughs> like, just white stucco on white drywall. And he doesn't give you that. He just gives you drywall. That's not, he doesn't even have, like, the fucking plaster over it to, to hide the seams. Yeah. He's so boring, dude. He is so fucking boring. Like, you don't care. And then when he goes for it, like, when he's transforming, you're like, where was this the whole time? Yeah. Like, that level of energy. Like, I could have used that the whole time out of him, and it would have made more sense. At least you'd have had more wacky performances instead of just people that just basically look bored. Yeah, I would say probably with him, the best bits with him are during the car chase you kind of mentioned earlier, which we, we haven't even mentioned this. The one cop whose partner is a cat named Clovis. He just brings <laughs> his fucking cat to his highway patrol. 
and fucking the, this big car just starts happening between him and that ki- kid. Who, by the way, Brian Krause also, he has a car that both can turn invisible and also yep. can transform into a different car. Yep, magic. Cat magic. They never explain it. like... Like they no. I, they turn invisible later, but the whole transforming car doesn't make any unless that car is also it's a cat car. Like is that <laughs> is it part cat person? Yeah, maybe it's a, it's a Trans Am with the Falcon or the you know the Phoenix on the top. It's just some big stupid cat. Right, but, but but all the stuff with like him interacting with Clovis, particularly like when he looks over, just stop looking at me, you fucking cat. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking stupid. <laughs> It's such a dumb movie, man. And eventually when they have, like, the weekend at Bernie's with, like, Brian Krause's character as a full-on cat person with Machinamic, like, I'm just like, is the mom, like, trying to do, like, a ventriloquist-type deal to make them dance together? Right. And they, they also, like, here's here's a weird thing. Like, the, this movie, is it only called Sleepwalkers because of that song, which is called, like, Sleepwalk? Honestly, if this was called Skinwalkers... It would have made more sense because it would have tied back into sort of like the American Indian legend and things like that of people who can transform into different animals and stuff like that. Like, I get it. Sleepwalkers, it, so, like, that's not scary. And yeah, it's because of the song. Also, no one sleepwalks in the movie. <laughs> no! I mean, if they did and it was that age-old thing, like, don't wake up a sleepwalker or they'll go crazy. Like, uh, I mean, all right, if they even alluded to something like that, nah, they don't do that either. It makes no sense. Yeah, and since Tom brought up the Sleepwalk song, they play that song more than they play it in the movie La Bamba, where, like, that's at least a contemporary song for, like, Richie Valens. They also play, like, a million times throughout the movie that Enya song, Bodica or something. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It ain't the 90s if Enya ain't involved. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> at least watching this, I was like, okay, I am consistently entertained by like whatever you're throwing at me, including points where cats jump at Alice Kreese and she like fucking snaps them in two. <laughs> Basically. Oh, it's like, shit, yeah. She just does that. And the big rampage Adam was talking about, which involves like obviously the corn, the cops stab or also her having a vase and I guess throwing it in the Ferris Bueller dad's face, which causes him to have his neck sliced, I guess. Is that what he dies? Yeah, I think. I don't know. Maybe he's allergic to pottery. Who the hell right. knows? And also the bit where <laughs> she shoots using a regular gun she got from a cop at police cars and immediately they explode. Yep. Yeah. Yep. She is an actor. <laughs> shot and also i mean it's probably just cat people magic who knows they can make trans ams disappear they can make regular fucking like you know 357 magnums if that they can make them have uh explosive bullets rocket bullets cat magic <laughs> it's like i said this is all the stuff from a stephen king novel that like people would edit out that people would just be like oh, stephen yeah. we're not gonna have this and we're not gonna have all this weird stupid we shit can't. in this movie <laughs> we can't do this let's just make them werewolf stephen except this time he's like no fuckers i'm writing this shit i'm making what the hell i want i'm writing this so not only do they turn into cats they can make cars disappear and they're super horny for each other you're like what the fuck steven stop no 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 fucking reins no nothing they just let him go and again that's why it's never happened to it's never happened since because what is this shit? How do you sell this? Who do you 
who do you take this to? I mean, the only thing you could sell with this, Stephen King wrote it. All right, cool. What's it about? Ah, uh, Stephen King wrote it. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> that's you it. You kind of say like, yes. oh, they're like they're like cat werewolves. Like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Yeah, and that's all yeah. I'm telling you. <laughs> this is the type of shit that like people would pick up at Blockbuster and just be like, why the fuck did I watch this? That's how I saw it. That, I mean, yeah. that's how I saw it. I, I, you know, Stephen King Sleepwalkers. I'm like, oh, what the hell? And the the covers, you know, got cats and it's which are like bloody claw marks and shit. I'm like, all right, whatever. This could be cool. Man, was I wrong? This was not cool, not cool at all. And I saw it as a young person, and even then, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of Freudian stuff started happening to me, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I really don't appreciate this movie for that. Look, well. guys. <laughs> no, I don't. You know, I don't want to get into it. Adam, can you get into like those? Sound like the start of at least some final thoughts. Can you get into non-incest related final thoughts, please? How, how do you? We're talking about this movie. Uh, yeah, I guess you know the thing is, I I would take this over some of his miniseries or some of his more blander films. Like I watch Sleepwalkers over Cujo, for sure, because Sleepwalkers is just so batshit off the wall. Like what? What is this here? So for that, it's not the bottom of the Stephen King list for me, just because it's such a weird curiosity of a film. I don't know who this was made for. Like, I don't understand what this was, who this was made for. Uh, like any of the production staff behind, it, including the director, nobody can show this and be like, yeah, check this out. I did this. Like, this isn't on Mick Garris's reel that he tries to get a job with. There's no fucking way. <laughs> Or or whenever she make, he makes an appearance, just like, oh, director of... No, don't put Sleepwalkers on there. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alice, Alice Creek didn't get the Borg Queen because of this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it, this is... It's such a wackadoo fucking wild movie that it kind of... You kind of have to see it to believe it. What is Sleepwalkers? That's going to be my fucking new dissertation slash thesis. <laughs> When I go back to the past. What is Sleepwalkers in this essay? What I will. Sleepwalkers. <laughs> essay by Adam Thomas. Adrian Mick Garris. He'd probably do it. He'd probably do it. <laughs> the foreword by Mick Garris. For sure. <laughs> um, but uh, Christian, your final thoughts on Sleepwalkers. This is definitely a Stephen King train wreck that I am just fascinated by. This isn't like Rose Red, where it has such a notorious reputation for being just too long and very boring and everything. It's only 91 minutes, and you feel every 91 of those minutes just being like, what the fuck is this? Outside of Alice Creed's match dynamic and the enjoyment of seeing Ron Perlman there, like, there's nothing really here to just be like, oh, there's a really great performance or something. It's just, it's dull, the effects are laughable, and it's probably a bigger a bigger accident than a Green Goblin truck going into a gas station. I don't know. We talked about Maximum Overdrive in the last Stephen King one. That was a pretty big mistake for a lot of reasons. And I think this one, honestly, it, it, I think it's, I would never describe it as dull. I think it is so consistently batch. It kind of fits in the same tomb of like uh, Adam's almost other choice that we did, which is Dreamcatcher. Because you watch mm. both those movies and you're just like, what? Like I, I literally <laughs> kept saying just what 
while I was watching this the other night. And I think it, that works for the exact length this movie is, which is like 90 minutes. They knew like they could not sustain any longer than that. And I think for that 90 minutes, I'm constantly just like, uh-huh, so incest? And like incest is like the start of it. Like, that happens about five minutes into the movie, and it only gets wackier from there. <laughs> and I think that's why I would say it's it's not maybe, like, the best, like, so bad it's good kind of Stephen King adaptation, but I think it fits mm-hmm. firmly as just, like, a fascinating failure to watch unfold. I, I would definitely say that much. It's, uh, it's, it's never dull. Like I said, <laughs> never... Never, ever dull. I think also, this was the first Mick Garris Stephen King adaptation. I think it proved that he's much more comfortable doing, like, miniseries like The Stand or um, even, like, Ride the Bullet (laughs) or some of these other ones that are just, like, a bit smaller. He doesn't know how to use the budget necessarily. Um, But, but yeah, at least, you know, they have, like, a fun friendship, like him and King, and that's great. And Mick seems like an awesome guy. Mick, come on the show. (laughs) We love you, Mick. (laughs) Uh, didn't he also do the Shining miniseries too? Yeah, I avoided that. Um. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Honestly, though, Eddie, pretty much any of those main sort of post it uh, King miniseries, Mick Garris did them for the most part. That's like true, he did yeah. Desperation. He did all. He did all those. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but also this one is nearly as long as some of those miniseries that are just super padded, oh. like a Tommyknockers. Tommyknockers is just, like, <laughs> so long. It's just like, guys, this is barely, like, an hour's worth of story <laughs> packed into three hours. <laughs> this doesn't work. Um, but, but yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and get into uh, our feedback section now that we're done talking about both the movies, uh, where every week we ask you, Wanda, at DEDBpod on Facebook and Twitter about, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite movies related to whatever topic that we're doing? And so we asked you all about Stephen King, and we got a couple people like uh, James Rodriguez who says uh, best would be The Mist Doctor Sleep, Stand By Me Carrie, Gerald's Game and Misery Worst, It Chapter 2 and The Dark Tower and then Brian Kane says uh, The Outsider is a great murder mystery miniseries retroactively has been cancelled on HBO that left me thinking about it for months and then Under the Dome was a series on CBS that adapted source material into terrible melodrama devoid of tension which I haven't seen those two series actually I'd heard The Outsider was pretty good I didn't even know that was a King story honestly I I honestly didn't either I did watch uh, I think like the first two parts of Under the Dome and I was good like I'm like I'm good on this yeah it started it started strong but it quickly fizzled I just remember that being like the first big project Dean Norris did post Breaking Bad yeah Yeah, and he's great at it right you know he's a really good character actor it's just the rest of it sort of just fell apart around him for sure but, um, Christian, you were talking about how you watched a few uh, King adaptations as of recent in particular. Um, were there any that really stood out to you as either you hadn't seen before or you still love going back to? Oh, yeah. I watched quite a few. Uh, I watched, like, Christine, which I feel like it might not live up to, like, the level of, like, The Shining or anything like that. But it's a very solid John Carpenter movie, and it's a fun kind of King movie in kind of his 80s uh repertoire the dead zone uh the david cronenberg one starring Mm -hmm. christopher walken i think is fantastic martin sheen plays a very uh very reminiscent political figure of modern times i don't know who Uh, you're comparing him to no 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 total piece of shit that you know is thankfully gone and can't tweet about it anymore (laughs) you heard him grover cleveland (laughs) you're on notice 
I also rewatched Misery, obviously. I think that's still fantastic. I wanted to say, though, with Misery, I recently had watched that after I'd read the book for the first time. And I think that's one of the best examples of adapting his stories, because I think Misery, the book, is a bit more kind of, like, cruel, and also has a lot more, like, sort of gore and stuff that they wisely edited out of that movie to its effect. Oh, I, definitely. Phenomenal. I, I, I'll, I'll second that, and I will say I think Misery is sort of the best example of taking a, a sort of one of his smaller books and well, not smaller because I don't think you can say that. I mean, it's books. like three, two, uh, 250 pages. So that's pretty small for, yeah. him, for him. That's yeah. pretty small. Okay. I, I think it's sort of the best example. I really do. And, and it is anchored by just phenomenal performances, dude. Kathy Bates alone is just terrifying and amazing. But even James Kahn, I mean, you know, James Kahn is a really sort of, uh, I don't want to say hit and miss, but a dry actor. Like sometimes he's really good. Other times he's kind of sleepwalking through it. Uh, and I, I think that's probably one of his best performances as well. It's a movie that's also aged wonderfully because it's about like toxic phantom. <laughs> it's aged very well. Definitely. That's a movie. I'm like, since Hollywood loves remaking Stephen King properties, I definitely love to see what they could do with bringing misery back into the limelight. Uh, Reiner, I think, just did such a good job with that one. And um, But on the subject of Rob Reiner, uh, directed Stephen King movies, I just watched Stand By Me before we recorded this. Out of a lot of the drama ones, obviously you have Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. you have The Green Mile, which are just phenomenal movies. But Stand By Me, that one, is it still holds a very sentimental place in my heart. Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I love Stand By Me. I absolutely love it. Stand By Me was one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid for, for a lot of reasons. Like, it felt real, the sort of the interaction between the kids, even though it gets a little silly. Like, Will Wheaton's character gets a little, like, silly in it. But yeah. it's still, it's, it's really, really fucking good. And, you know, plus a young, beautiful, but terrifying Kiefer Sutherland. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, that's a great one. Uh, but then, you know, to get onto the sort of the newer King track, you know, we did bring up it and uh, Gerald's game. And then there was even what, 1922. And that one is this. That one's very underrated. The Thomas, the best Thomas Jane performance in a long time. Yep. And the tall grass isn't terrible either. It's pretty good, but I'd be remiss. A, I agree completely with it. Chapter two. I think that was just such a fucking, just a bore fest and totally yeah. all. That's yeah. the worst part of the book. Again, it's halfway through this giant ass tome and he starts to lose it. The, the, uh, the wisest decision they made was really separating like the young and the older stories. Yes. At least. Cause at least Definitely. we have it. Chapter one still works really well. It's like a contained story. Oh yeah. It chapter one's really good. Um, but, the fucking Pet Cemetery remake. Oh God, how atrocious! It is yeah. laughable, bad. and it makes changes, unnecessary changes, to an already pretty good story. Actually, one of his best books. That's my favorite of his books. Yeah, it's so fucking good. Yeah, the original movie's still pretty good. I mean, it's it, there's parts in it that are silly, but it holds up pretty well. But the remake. The, the fucking, like, zombie family thing they try to do? Like, what are we doing here? See, I, I, that's why that's why I still say, I think the first half of the Pet Cemetery remake is, has, like, a lot of promise. I think it's the closest that, like, either version has gotten to getting the book pretty accurately. I think particularly Jason Clark's a better lead than the guy from the first it's, version. Without a doubt, yeah. But I think it's right when we get to the point where it's him and John Lithgow, who I think is 
are right in the movie. The point where they go to the in the burial ground, the actual pet cemetery, and it's like a weird oh. giant cliff or whatever, like giant mountain yes. that they have to climb up. That's where I'm starting to be like, oh no, what are we doing? <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> Let's be honest. The, the switch, the the switch to have it be. Um... Oh God, I can't remember. Her the, name. The, the daughter as opposed to the younger son. Suppose a gauge is unnecessary. It's it's only done so you can like have a character who speaks more and can like tell you more about like the creepy stuff more fit into more like the creepy zombie kid stuff as opposed to like what worked about Gage was that he was like a small child who could barely speak and that makes it way worse. Right. And it's oh terrifying. yeah. And yet you get this little girl who might be a good actress. I don't know, but you get her and all you do is make her put on a creepy voice. Like, I'm going to get you, daddy. And you're supposed to be like, oh, this is terrifying. Like, I haven't seen that a thousand times. It's just, that's a really, really bad one. And, and to second what Christian said earlier about Dreamcatcher, Dreamcatcher is a fucking wild movie. Yes. I mean, Morgan Freeman's <laughs> yeah. eyebrows are long. What the <laughs> shit is happening here? But there's a lot of good performances in that movie, man. Like, Tom Jane's pretty good in it. Uh, Timothy Oliphant's pretty good in it, even though he's in it for a bit. Tom Sizemore's pretty good in it. Uh, Damian Lewis owns every second of screen he's on. Particularly when he gets to do his British accent, which I love. Like, I didn't know that dude was British. I'd seen this that movie before. <laughs> and then and I just thought, like, watching Dreamcatcher, like, oh, man, this guy's British accent's so bad. What are they doing? And later finding out he's British. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's so over the top. Why is he talking like that? Like, and then you find out, oh, no, that's his voice. Like, oh, oh, boy. <laughs> like, like, but, yeah, he's really good, and he's kind of creepy. I mean, let's be honest. The, the Duddits thing is what kills the movie. I don't even care about the shit weasels, even though they call them that. But they're they're kind of scary, dude. Like, the idea of that is terrifying. Well, well, also, we should point out, it was directed by Lawrence Kaz and written by William Goldman. Like, two great director, one of the best screenwriters who's ever lived. Yeah, they're all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, such, it's also, like, a weird grab bag of every Stephen King story. It is, like, it's the highlight reel of, like, here's a Stephen King story. Here's 15 of them. Now, out of all... Right, exactly. And out of all the ones that have been done already that I would like to see get a proper fucking scary remake, even though they've tried so many times and there's so many sequels is a proper children of the corn remake i think oh could god because the original is such a bad movie it's so dull and the sequels are so bad and then <laughs> yeah. the series they did was so bad like they can do it it could be badass but it's just they they don't want to commit to it and i get it though because there is sort of that stigma to it because of all the sequels like sometimes they come back there's like four of those like why the <laughs> fuck are there four of these movies <laughs> but like a good children of the corn that could work you know in terms in that regard i would say i actually watched for the first time uh ever um needful things yeah and i think needful things is like it's not the best or worst Stephen King movie, but I think it's the sort of definitive one in terms of this is everything good and bad about Stephen King story. Yes. <laughs> because it has such a great setup. I love the first hour of that movie and the setup of like, the Max little... Max Fonsi does great. Ed Harris is also great. JT Walsh is great. It's a really good... Amanda Plummer, really good cast. And then like halfway through, they just start really like shitting the bin. and they don't know what to do. I've heard there's an extended version that's really good that's played on TV. It's like it adds an hour and actually feels like it's mm. the appropriate length. But also, I think that story could work so well if you, like, just do a newer version of it that gives the, the whole thing room to breathe. 
yeah, I, I think that could work. I think, but not like a not like a big three part, like a good two part, two night sort of miniseries. I think would work. Right, I I would say that for sure. Christian, Christian, is there any in that kind of realm as well? You'd like to see like a newer version of that you think could do something interesting? Um, well, I'd probably say I would like to see another shot at Salem's Lot. I feel like maybe they're maybe if they get the right people on it. Uh, definitely don't want them to re redo it the way how they did it with Rob Lowe for <laughs> three. <laughs> I'm excited to see where they could take it. I feel like, you know, with two of my favorite current uh, Stephen King things, one that I just saw today, Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep, like, Mm -hmm. I would love to see what they would do if they just threw a bunch of money at Mike Flanagan to do Salem's Lot. I don't think you even have to throw that much money at him, though. Like, he's proven he can do it without huge, crazy budgets. Plus, I think despite how great Dr. Sleep is, like, that one not being that successful probably limits his ability to do a bigger budget horror movie. But with, uh, with Joe, cut of Dr. Sleep, we got to talk about that. It's so much better. It's so much better. And so much more to the movie. It makes the movie three hours long, which is crazy, but it's totally fucking worth it. I, I think with Salem's lot, I think the biggest mistake they made, even like the original Toby Hooper miniseries, which I think has a lot of great highlights. It has that Stephen King miniseries problem, which is like, there's so much padding. Like, I think it worked yes. perfectly as, like, an hour and a half to two-hour movie, as opposed to extending it to three hours. Yeah, I definitely yeah. agree with that. <laughs> and just, you know what, one that I want to shout out, because I didn't watch it until recently, and during Halloween, one that I heard of, like, is sort of, like, the very underseen gem of his, uh, of the adaptations of his, The Night Flyer. Yes. Um, which is, it's a very hokey, like, idea, and it's not, like, the highest budget movie, necessarily. But if you don't know, this is about a guy who works for sort of, like, a weekly world news tabloid, um, played by Miguel Ferrer, who, um, is investigating, basically, like, this serial killer vampire who's going around, like, in his, a plane, and, like, traveling from place to place, and, like, people go missing, die, and all this other stuff. It's, like I said, kind of cheap, and it's not, like, the best movie, but Miguel Ferrer is so fucking good as he always was but in particular this movie yeah he's he's like hard-boiled detective type energy that's so good still kind of a sleaze though right yes you know and no one played it better than him yes. like honestly so good and i would also say once we get to like him finding like the vampirism element of it like the last i'd say like 45 minutes to a half hour is like such a weird bizarro thing but like really works and i love like the mythology they set up and even the vampire looks kind of silly but also the way they oh, portray so that character cool. is terrifying. Yeah, but like the actual aspects of that char- the vampire character are so cool. Very underrated. Would definitely recommend that one to anybody. I'll definitely have to add that to the list. We also talked about Creepshow for so long. The Shutter Creepshow series is really good. I'd recommend that yeah. to anybody too. Yeah. Shutter is basically uh, becoming the Creepshow Network. Basically. Y'all haven't tried the show yet. I'll have to give it a shot. Like, any anthology show, it's definitely, like, hits and misses with stories, but, like, I would say there are more hits than misses. Also, we had just a brief bit of feedback I wanted to read, uh, just in reference to our last episode, where on Instagram, I post up, like, the two different, like, photos from the movies we do. Reference to last week, where we did the stand-up vehicles episode, and reference to Carrot Top's face, uh, Jenny Walker said, first time I've ever had a jump scare scrolling through Instagram. I apologize, Jenny. <laughs> I apologize, you had to see that. Yeah, well, you know, I don't, because we had to watch the whole movie. So, she only got to see his face for one second, we saw the whole goddamn thing. We saw 95 <laughs> minutes of it. Oh, God. Fuck uh, yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, thank you all for all that feedback and we also want to thank people like chris oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com thanks to Alex carter for the art she provided for our show and thanks to as i mentioned at the top of the show our loyal patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash dedbpod where for just one dollar a month you all get to uh go ahead and partake in some fun polls we do where you get to pick like topics like stephen king that we're doing here um or you know certain specific movies we do and even listen to at least one bonus podcast a month we might have some uh little treats that we do on occasion as well but at least one is guaranteed every month and uh this month not too long i think after this episode comes out you'll be able to hear our audio commentary on tron legacy which we'll be recording very soon i'm very curious to have that conversation Ah, uh, yeah the filthy ass motherfucking edgelords you were told this <laughs> that shit and you get to hear thomas try to fucking flay me alive over it but i will stand strong i will hold my post i think it'll be a very interesting conversation i'm, I'm, I'm yeah, very sure of that. that it's not gonna be that interesting it's just gonna be you like see i don't understand the actual aesthetic choice behind this <laughs> so to me it's reminiscent of like it's fucking cool <laughs> that for two hours basically yeah. <laughs> maybe but but uh you can listen to all of that if you're like as i mentioned an edgelord patron for just one dollar like christian we thank you for yes. being a patron of course we also thank you for just uh, being on the show well thank you for having me tom um i am a patreon edgelord and since you guys have kind of gotten me on a stephen king kick i'm actually planning this weekend to listening to your shining commentary Oh, yes, we did that as well. If you want more Stephen King talk, we did a whole commentary on the Stanley Kubrick film with The Shining. That was our last one. Yeah, thank you, Christian, for that plug. Uh, we're not going to give you back your dollar, though, for that. <laughs> give us more dollars. <laughs> You're going to say content, which is give us I, more dollars. <laughs> I actually did by going to the T Public store and getting myself a double-edged double bill shirt as well. Look at this fucking guy. Christian, wait, you went to T Public Store over to the ESO Network specifically store and bought uh, a t-shirt, or you could also buy a mug or a face mask, maybe? Christian, that's so great. Maybe other people should do that. You're pleased with the product, right? Yes, it's a great shirt. I like wearing it to the gym and everything. I always love listening to your show there, and I love to give you guys support any way I can. Thanks for also not giving back your dollar for promoting the store. Yeah, <laughs> we're keeping that dollar. But thank you, thank you so much for all the support. I am happy to provide it for what you guys do. It all goes up my nose, much like the budget of Sleepwalkers. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. But we ain't getting $15 million yet. Please, get yeah. us there. <laughs> uh, but uh, for more of our silly antics, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. That's where you post up the feelers and stuff, asking you, hey, what are your favorite and least favorite ones? Related to the topic that we do. And also you can send us feedback, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, you can find me also on Twitter and Instagram or Letterboxd as at not the Who's Tommy, where I post my uh, musings on movies and other things. And also I do some writing at marianitomas.wordpress.com, which the as we're recording this episode earlier in the day, I released my top 20 films of 2020 list. And uh, you can go ahead and peruse that, see what I ranked pretty highly, and also where you can stream many of those choices, given 2020 was the year of we're stuck inside, let's stream some movies. Find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom 
or Adam, that's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. I mostly just post paintings or just random bullshit at 3 o'clock in the morning. But yeah, find me on there. I'll share your stuff. Uh, I'll do do whatever you need. You know what? I'll dance for them dollars. Christian, I'm going to dance for your dollar, baby. <laughs> As Tom has said in the previous Stephen King episode, dance, puppet, dance. Oh, well, that's a deep cut. And for more deep cuts, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the ESO network, why not dig into the archives of both the various other great shows on the network and also even ours over at Podbean, where like there were 70 or so episodes we did before we joined ESO. And if you want to, you know, you can't buy something at the store or contribute to the Patreon, we would appreciate if you just rate, reviewed, or share the show around to give us more visibility, because that's absolutely free, baby. 100% free, baby. And by the way, too, we don't mention enough, but we are on Spotify. You know what I mean? Spotify. Everybody's I mean, got I, Spotify. I mentioned at the end of every episode, I mentioned Spotify. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, but I'm going to say it again to make it more real. Because everyone thinks Thomas is a liar. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's just full of lies. Nothing but lies. Full of lies. He's a bag of lies. Yes, but uh, I won't be lying when I say we got to do our picking. For next week's topic and this is a bit of a somber note just because um we realized in terms of the timing of things we'll be releasing next week's episode on an unfortunate anniversary uh the seventh anniversary when we lost a great actor who we haven't talked enough about on the show so we decided let's do a whole episode about him we're going to be doing a philip seymour hoffman episode which i'm very excited to do Oh, me too, man. He's so good. One of the one of my favorite character actors ever. Do you have the two good movies for this particular yes, topic? Sir. I have the two bad ones. We've assigned numbers between 1 and 10 for each of those. And, uh, you know, the way we do this is uh, someone will pick numbers between 1 and 10 for your two good choices and my two bad. Usually we do that for each other's choices, but we have a guest like Christian. They get to do that here. So, Christian, for Adam's two good choices, a number between 1 and 10. All right. I'm going to go with number 8. All right. At number nine, I have, which is not necessarily a Philip Seymour Hoffman starring vehicle, but he's one of the main side characters in it. And Thomas and I have talked about this movie here and there. It's one of my favorite movies, maybe ever. Uh, I have Spike Lee's uh, 25th Hour. Oh, my fucking God. Oh, ah. oh I'm so happy. <laughs> I didn't expect this. I'm so happy. fucking movie so much. Such a great movie. <laughs> it's so oh. oh, I'm so happy. One of my favorite movies. At number one, I had The Master, which I think oh. is also a pretty good Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. Yeah, yeah. All performance. Yeah, great, great. I'm very ecstatic. I can't wait to have the 25th hour. So good. But so good. for my two bad choices, Christian, number between one and ten. For you, I'm going to go with number three. Okay, now at number two, I have a movie that I know a lot of people have affection for, and I have some affection for it as well. But it's kind of a dumb fun bad movie but one i would love it i can't wait to talk about on the show either i have the uh bill paxton helen hunt starring twister uh that's a good choice uh it's a stupid fucking movie but it's super fun yeah yeah so that's a fun one <laughs> oh yeah yes um and then at number nine um i had uh one that i th- it's it's a pretty bad typical romantic comedy but he's pulling some jack black energy in it i have a long cane poly He's the only good part of that whole movie. He has one of my favorite pratfalls ever in a movie in that movie, though. Yeah. Where he just, like, fucking falls on his ass, and he's so good. <laughs> Might be the first time I ever heard the term sharded, too. Might have been in that movie. That's true, from Phil Seymour Hoffman, Academy Award winning. Yep. Like, the next year after that movie, he won for Capote, I believe. Yeah, yes. 
Uh, but yeah, that'll be very fun to get into. Um, but until next time, uh, good night, kitties. Uh, yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Not the creepiest thing about either of the movies that we covered. The Creep Show, oh. the movie called Creep Show is less creepy <laughs> than Sleepwalkers is. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> 100% the case. Good night. Bye. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.